Radio. Presumption, power, and passion. A talk by Professor Drake McAllister at the Immaculate Mission School 2013, held at St Thomas Beckett Parish in Lewisham, Sydney. Scripture reading as we pray as we did before. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. A reading from the letter to the Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you should. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are plain, immorality, impurity licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, anger, strife, jealousy, enmity, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds to your scriptures this evening and help us to make a full response of faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Father, Son, All right, hopefully you brought your Bibles tonight. We are going to uh, spend a fair amount of time uh, looking through uh, our Bibles this evening. And I'm going to grab one more thing here. Okay, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. One more time. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Amen. So, the question is... We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, but how is it that Christ strengthens us? How is it that Christ strengthens us? So you've got Drake, the happy sinner. <laughs> Fine art, if I've ever seen it. Uh, you've got the cross of Christ. That paid for every sin, past, present, and future. How does the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ get to drink the happy sinner? Actually, since I'm in sin, I'm, 
I'm a sad sinner. I just, I think, I'm, there you go. Um, it's through the Holy Spirit. So it is the grace of the cross, Jesus Christ, that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And then I'm because now I'm sinking. <laughs> uh, you've got the cross, you've got the person. It is the Holy Spirit that makes active the grace of the cross of Christ. I'm not going to read these right now, but if uh, just for those that would like to, 83, So, Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 683. 686 and 1 Corinthians 12.3 for a little overview of this. We'll talk more about this later in the week because we're talking about sacraments, but that introduces us enough for where we are going tonight. The Holy Spirit is what makes active the work of Christ in us. Alright, so let's add, we're going to test your, your memorization abilities here, so let's add another one here. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. All right. Let's talk about sin. Because sin's fun, right? I mean, it's fun. You wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. Right? I mean, nobody is over there going, oh, I just, I'm just not going to do this thing. It's like, well, yeah, I totally want to do that. I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, that's kind of the way sin works, right? Sin in its basic definition is what? Selfishness. I want what I want. Biblical love, what you and I call to, is selflessness. It is sacrificial. Biblical love has nothing to do with romance. Nothing. Zero. With the exception of a true husband is selfless towards his wife and a wife is selfless towards her husband. So selfishness, I mean, excuse me, sin, at its core is selfishness. What can this do for me? So, uh, I'm somewhat of an expert in this subject, because I sin a lot. So, uh, let me tell you a story. Uh, you can add this to my, my fail blog site. Uh, in my early 20s, let's see, I would have been probably maybe 20 or so. Uh, I, um, I, well, you saw, I, I showed you the Land Rover picture, right? So I've always been a bit of an off-road nut. I've always liked anything that drove off-road. I found that off-road vehicles are far more satisfying than sports cars. Because in general, the only way to really make use of a sports car is to drive illegally, right? I mean, if you don't open that baby up to, well, 150 miles an hour, I don't know what that is in kilometers. It's like 2,000 or something. Uh, I know it's, it freaks me out when I see this 110 on the freeway to realize, oh, it's not really that fast. Uh, but sports cars, you're just always, just never really able to use it. But off-road vehicles, you can just go off in the bush somewhere and just have a ball, get stuck, break stuff, and it's a great time. Um, so, this was my dream truck when I was 20 years old. A 1980 GMC half-ton four-wheel drive. Four-inch lifted, 33-inch tires, 12 and a half-inch rims, Edelbrock manifold, RV cam, headers, it was a sweet ride in every sense of the word. The problem is, I wanted the truck, but I did not have the money. 
So, I went to my dad, like all good sons do. Dad, will you help me get the money? He said, no. <laughs> dad, um, I said, Dad, I checked with the bank, and we could get a loan. All I need you to do is co-sign on the loan, sign for me to say I'm a good, reputable, upstanding guy, and I'll pay it back. He said, no. I said, come on, Dad. And he said, no, it's not wise to go in debt for something that you don't need. This is just a pure want. You have a vehicle. And, but Dad, this is the greatest truck ever. It's got a, the gas cap. Um, like the little door for the gas was chromed. You know, there was parts inside that were chromed. And it was just, Dad, I have to have this truck. No. And I, I kept bugging them and bugging them and bugging them. And finally, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So my dad finally says, all right, it's time that you learn to stand on your own two feet, learn your own lessons. So you can uh, uh, you know, get, get, uh, get, get what you desire and see what comes of it. So we went down, we got the loan. And I was like, yes, can't, can't wait. So I went out to the guy's house, gave him his money, got in the truck, and uh, started that baby up, started to drive away. And it's one of these first moments in my life that I had an overwhelming, tangible sense of, I'm driving away. This should be more satisfying than it is right in this moment. I should be happier now. Satisfied. Sorry, I saw the veil down that's keeping me. I was thinking, I should, I should be happier now as I'm driving down the road. Uh, I was enjoying it, but I thought it would actually satisfy some desire that I had inside. But it didn't. It didn't. Now, the truck was fun. We had a great time. Uh, anything that was fitting under that front bumper, that thing would go over. I mean, rocks, whatever. We, I had a great time in that truck. Until I had to make the truck legal. So, do you, do you have smog requirements here? You have to take your car in every year or two years and get it tested for smog emissions requirements. So, same thing in California where I was. So, I had to take the truck in to make it legal. And uh, when I bought it, it didn't have all the equipment on it for all the emissions because it had all this high performance stuff on it. But the guy who sold it to me said, don't worry about it. Everything you need's in the back of the truck. It'll all fit. So I'm like, great, because all I wanted was the truck. I didn't care what the consequences were. So I went to the emission station. They looked at my truck and said, buddy, you need about a thousand bucks here to fix this thing. I said, well, I've got all these parts. You ain't got half of what you need. And I was like, oh, crap. So now I have a truck that I can't make legal, which means I can't get the little tabs for the license plate that says I'm legal because it won't pass emissions, and I don't have enough money to put all the parts on to make it legal. So I keep driving the truck. And finally my little tags on the license plate, you have those here too, right? And it has a year. How do you then know you're legal? The window, okay. So you have the little tag that says you're legal, right? And, what, and it goes by every year, every two years or something? So finally my little tag expires. So now it's whatever year because I can't make my truck legal, so now I keep driving it. Thinking, because this is a sweet truck. So, one day, 
driving. You pulled over. Uh, young man, do you know that your license is expired? Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> this is the kind of way sin works. It just starts snowballing, right? So he's, I said, oh, officer, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He says, all right, young man, you take this truck home right now. Do not drive it until you can get illegal. And so I said, yes, sir. Took it home and kept driving. I didn't park the truck. I kept driving and driving. And, uh, and then one day I was on a hill and I parked on this hill. I put it in park, started to get out of the truck, and it started to roll. And I thought, my park doesn't work. So I always had to park somewhere flat because my parking brake didn't work. And it was a big truck, so the parking brake didn't necessarily hold it. So I always had to make sure I parked in very careful places. My dream truck continued to uh, deteriorate here, and the guy sold it to me that way. I didn't realize, because it was flat when I bought it, so I didn't think about it. And uh, so, another day, oh, so I got a, I got a, I, I actually did get a ticket that first time for driving without my, my, my tags being legal. So I was sent a ticket in the mail, and I got the ticket and said, bummer, that's 200 bucks, I can't pay that. So I just set it on top of my dresser. And it stayed, and stayed, and stayed, and stayed, and stayed, until it was way past the due date, and I figured, ah, they probably don't need the money anyway. So, I'm happily driving along another day. Uh, young man, do you know there's a warrant out for your arrest? I said, what? No, why? You're driving on expired tax. Oh, you kidding? Oh, I can't believe this. Really? No, I, I promise, I'm never driving again. There's really a warrant? And he said, take this truck home and park it. Uh, he shouldn't have just hauled me into jail right then, but he didn't. And uh, so I finally took the truck home. I finally parked it. And uh, this thing that I wanted so bad ended up becoming the... Uh, the, the biggest nightmare in my life. Tickets, warrants for my arrest, parts I couldn't pay for, and all of this leading up to my wedding with my wonderful wife-to-be. Uh, well, I'm living this double life that she doesn't know about, right? And so, my dad wants to rent us a car for the honeymoon. So I said, great. He says, all, all, all we need now is a driver's license so we can get you the car rented. And I had to say, um, Dad, I actually don't have a current license because my driver's license has also expired because there's a warrant out for my arrest. I haven't paid my tickets and I'm, I'm running from the law. <laughs> Well, wife-to-be, and she, she, I'm sure she had the thought of thinking, I better run now because this is a picture of things to come. And she's like, who are you? What's going on here? So I finally sucked it up. I went down to the courthouse, talked to the judge. You know, you go through the whole deal. You pay everything. You become a solid citizen once again. And I got my license back, paid all the fees, and... And, uh, and I finally sold the truck. It wasn't even running. That thing got towed away on a tow truck, and I was so glad to see it gone. It was just sayonara, don't ever come back. 
My dad was absolutely right. And I hope you grow up enough to some point in your life, go back to your mom or your dad and tell them, Mom, Dad, remember that thing you told me like 20 years ago? You were right. That'll just make their day. In fact, for about 10 years, every Mother's Day and Father's Day, I called my parents and have a conversation and I'm gonna tell them something I learned that year that they taught me 20 or 30 years ago that I finally sunk in. And I got to tell my dad this whole truck story at one point. And I said, Dad, you were absolutely right. Now here's the deal. Sin always takes you, does three things. Takes you where you do not want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Sin takes you where you do not want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you way more than you want to pay. But once you're in, you can't just get out. At least not on your own. So tonight, we're going to talk about sin. And you might notice that my titles that I've officially put in your note sheets and things are a little adjust, adjusted from what Mother Mary Teresa put on the schedule. Um, and that's just to hone in the main point here a little more. We're going to talk about Peter, the Apostle Peter tonight, and talk about the three stages of the Apostle Peter's life. And these aren't just unique to Apostle Peter. This is you. This is me. This is everybody. And the three stages are this. Presumption, power, passion. And that's on your sheets, right? Presumption, power, passion. And as we go through these, you will see yourself at any one of these stages. And they're not necessarily linear. You, you, you could be a, a little bit of all the stages, but usually predominantly one. Sometimes you come in and out of the various stages. So if you've got a Bible, um, grab your Bible and we uh, go ahead and flip to Matthew 14. Once you find Matthew chapter 14, I'll read one of the scripture, but we're going to spend most of the time in Matthew. So get there, hold that place. All right. Presumption. Here's how I'm defining the presumption, presumption stage. This is where you presume you have enough Jesus to get to heaven, but not so much Jesus that would require changing your life. This is where you presume you have enough Jesus to get to heaven, but not so much Jesus that would require changing your life. This is, you, you like Jesus for all kinds of reasons. He's a good moral teacher. That love thing, man, he's, he's got that down pat. I like that. Uh, he's a good spiritual teacher. Man, Jesus, he's the ultimate guru, man. He's got it all over Gandhi. Uh, or maybe he's, uh, you know, he's the ultimate transformative figure. Uh, you know, Jesus, he's the ultimate countercultural. It's like Jesus is so retro, he's cool again because he's just, you know, he's, he's maybe this guy. You know, it's, 
it's, it's hippie Jesus, right? It's like, peace, love, rock and roll, man. Everybody together. It's like, just get along. Ah, uh, you know, tie-dye hippie, fossil guitar, flowerhead Jesus. Ah, uh, people like the peace Jesus, but they often have a difficulty with the, the judgment Jesus. So presumption. You have just enough Jesus to get you to heaven. At least that's what you presume. But not so much that requires changing your life. Alright, now this is catechism again. Catechism 2092. Here's what it says about presumption. Presumption can take the form of trust in self without recognizing that salvation comes from God. Or an overconfidence in divine mercy. So one extreme is, I'm good enough? Leave me alone. Get off my back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there. God, but God wouldn't really keep me out of heaven. You presume that your sin doesn't matter. And then the other, the other end is overconfidence in divine mercy. Listen, Jesus paid for it all on the cross, man. I'm, I'm a sinner. Jesus was, I mean, the apostles were sinners. The Pope's a sinner. So, I mean, Jesus, he's, he covered it all. He's going to forgive me when I get to heaven. We're comfortable with sin, but not so much that it transforms our life. So the presumption stage, you, you want to try and follow Jesus at many levels. Peter wanted to follow Jesus at many levels. But really, here's how the Christian life is characterized from someone in the presumption stage. What can Jesus do for me? What can Jesus do for me? Yeah, I'm in it. I'll do the Christian thing. Well, what's in it for me? Well, the girls are kind of cute, so I think I'll come back. Uh, the guys, no, not so much. Um, I've met so many people that like, yeah, Jesus hooked me with the girls, and then I got converted. Uh, uh, so watch out, ladies. Half these guys here are just, no. All right. So let's take a look at Peter's life. And, and keep in mind, this is the man Jesus chose to be head, leader, first pope of the church. All right. So we're going to go through, I'm going to start with Luke. Stay in Matthew because we're going to do a bunch of Matthew. I want to read one scripture from Luke and then we'll jump in to Matthew. So as Peter encountered Jesus, in his first encounter with Jesus, Peter is made aware of his sin. And that's a good place to start. Luke 5.8 says, uh, this is when, when the... the um, this is when Jesus calls Peter to be his first disciple, or to be his disciple. And they're in the boat, they're fishing, they've fished all day, they've caught nothing. Jesus says, throw your nets to the other side. They get more fish than they can handle. Peter falls down, and here's what he says. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So, Peter had been made aware of his sin by Jesus. And this is a good place. Jesus touched something in Peter. And, and many of us in the presumption stage, kind of like me driving my truck, eh, I'll get away with it. It's not really going to matter. We're, we, we, we know there's something wrong, but it kind of stops there. 
All right, let's go look at Matthew 14. 14.22. So the second one, Peter was willing to step out of faith. He wanted to try. He wanted to make, make a good effort. But what happens? He gives in to fear and doubt. Fear and doubt. This is the event where Jesus is walking on the water towards the boat that Peter's in. Verse 29. Let's pick it up there, actually. We won't read the, the whole thing. Let's pick it up at verse 29, Matthew 14. Well, okay, let me back up one verse. So Peter uh, says to Jesus, If it is you, Lord, bid me come. Tell me to come out on the water. So verse 29. So Jesus says, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Just stop there for a second. How awesome would that be? You're like, you're on the boat. Tell me to go, Lord. Which is kind of crazy. What if it is a creepy ghost? I mean, then the ghost says, jump. That never really made sense to me. But anyway, Peter said, tell me to come. He said, go and jump. Can you imagine what that would be like to land on the water and not go in? Then he starts walking. But then what happens? He finally opens his eyes, right? Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Take note. That's always a good thing to say. When you're in crisis and you find yourself sinking and whatever it is, Lord, save me. That's a good place to start. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him. Saying to him, oh man of little faith, why did you doubt? So what did Peter do? He took his eyes off Jesus. He started to look at the surroundings, at the problems, at the challenges. And that gave way to, or gave birth to fear and to doubt. He focused on the trials. But what did we hear this morning in Deuteronomy? Hear this, church of Australia. You're approaching your battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. To save you. Peter wanted to step out of faith but was not yet capable of of following through. All right, let's go to a couple pages. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Peter had some spiritual success. He recognized some sin. He's trying to step out of faith. And he, and he has a few bright spots along the way. He's not a total knucklehead. So, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is asking them all, who do people say that I am? And they've given him all kinds of answers. Then he turns to Peter. and says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death will not prevail against it, and I'll give you the keys 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And Peter's just got to be going, yeah, cha-ching. Got the answer to the quiz. Rock, keys, church, score. He's over there going, James, you should have said Christ. Because maybe you would have been the rock, you know? He's like, yes. So he's, he's got some things going in his direction. So, but what happens? You flip a few verses later, not very far. Let's go down to verse 21. So Peter's success didn't last too long, right? So Peter knew Jesus, had been with Jesus, but had yet to be transformed by Jesus. In our first talk, we talked about the apostles in the early church were radically transformed by Christ. Peter is still accepting Jesus on Peter's terms. He's still kind of maybe at the you know, hippie guitar Jesus, uh, looking for a political leader. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, uh, God forbid, Lord, this should never happen to you. I mean, it's as if Peter's over there, sitting there thinking, you know, he's kind of hobnobbing with the apostles. He goes, yeah, he really did say rock. And he goes, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty buff. Yeah, check me out. Yeah, yeah, I think you could build a church on me. I'm a stout fisherman. Check it out. And, and all of a sudden, he hears Jesus over there going, death and, you know, resurrection, persecution. He's like, what? What? Come on, this is no way to you know start a movement to build a kingdom. All that guys, let me go straight to Jesus. Then. So he's over there. Listen, Jesus, no, this is you're not going to die. I mean, come on, this is this is a bad plan. Let me tell you how it's going to go. And then we get verse 23. These are words you never want said about yourself. But he turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but men." Ah, ah, oh. Now, some will debate, was Jesus actually calling Peter Satan or was Satan just there? Regardless, Peter is the instigator of bringing Satan into the conversation. That's not a good thing. So this is the point where we see again Peter not fully yet engaging with the sacrificial side of Christ. He's still wanting Jesus on his own terms. It's still, what can Jesus do for me? Presumption stage. What can Jesus do for me? All right. We keep going. What do we got next? Matthew 16, I mean 26. Put a few more pages. So again, Peter tries to be faithful in the flesh, as we talked about in the first time, not by the Spirit. So, a few chapters earlier, Peter's trying to keep Jesus from dying. But Peter's kind of learned the lesson, okay, maybe death is a part of this deal. So now Peter tries to step up his commitment and profess his willingness to sacrifice for Christ. So chapter 26. This is Jesus during the Last Supper. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Peter declared to him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter's giving it all he's got. He's like, Okay, Jesus is going to die. I'm going with you, Lord. I'm going down with the ship. I'm ready. And Jesus, he just knows, Peter, you're all show and no go. <laughs> and Peter has yet to really be pressed with profound persecution. So he has yet to be tested. And we see just a few verses later, Matthew 26, 39 through 41. Again, Jesus specifically pointing out the contrast between flesh and and spirit. The flesh represented trying to will the Christian victory. I didn't think that. The spirit letting God make it happen. Verse 37, Matthew 26. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So this is the garden. They've left the upper room. Now they're in the garden praying right before Jesus' arrest. Verse 39. And going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as, you, as thou wilt. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Could you not wait with me one hour? Verse 41, watch and pray. Keyword, pray. That you may not enter into temptation. Then here it is. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter was not praying and therefore was not capable of having the resource the spiritual resource to stand fast. So no matter how hard Peter tries, he simply can't will this good action into existence. Further on down to 26, verse 29 through 75. So after Peter makes his greatest profession of faith, Lord, I'll die with you. He just keeps escalating his bold proclamations and keeps gloriously failing uh, bigger each and every time, leading up to his most profound failure. So now Peter is sitting outside of the courtyard and a maid came up to him. So Jesus is now arrested. He's being uh, scourged. He's being uh, publicly put on trial. And there is a great frenzy going around in regards to Jesus. And a maid came up to him and said, You were also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know you. I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the porch, another maid saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you also are one of them, for your accent betrays you. 
Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the cock crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And went out and wept bitterly. Peter tried his hardest to live for Jesus. He kept trying and trying, but he fails and ends up denying Jesus. Presumption stage. In summary, you presume you have enough Jesus to get to heaven, but not so much that it will change your life. You might find yourself in this place that, like Peter, you're trying over and over to be faithful in the Christian life, but you keep failing, and your fails keep getting bigger. You keep saying, "This time I'm going to get it. This time I'm going to get it," and it just keeps getting more grand. And lastly, at this stage of life. We're comfortable with the sins in our life, presuming that they, they don't really matter. It's Jesus on my terms, not Jesus on Jesus' terms. Sin always takes you where you do not want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, costs you more than you want to pay. And when the pressure's on, when it comes down to it, and you're pressed, are you a Christian or not? Like Peter, you may reject Jesus in word or deed. Now, what's our, what's our memory verse? Do we, do we remember? The new one. John 16, 13. All right. Okay, good. Let's say it again together. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. All right. So stage two. We're going to have to kind of move along quick to make sure we get done here in time. This is the power stage. And this is a good place to be. So the power stage, what's this? This is where you submit to Jesus Christ and invite the Holy Spirit into your life and become willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. You're willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, it can be difficult because this requires waiting. Waiting, we'll talk more about that in a moment. In the first stage, Peter, he didn't want to wait for everything. Everything was now, no, Lord, you're not going to die, no, Lord, or yes, Lord, I'm ready to die. He's, he's always a man of immediate action. Want me in the boat or jumping in the water? Great, I'll do it. And he's, he's ahead of the leading of the Holy Spirit. This stage is about waiting. And at this stage, you begin to make a transition. You move from, what can Jesus do for me, to... What can Jesus do through me? What can Jesus do through me? Now, I won't go into the whole restoration of Peter because after Peter rejects Jesus, then Jesus, he rises again, reconnects with the apostles and Peter specifically. They're out walking on the seashore and he re restores Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know I do. And, and Peter's restored, profoundly restored. A, a three times denial of Christ and a three times profession 
of his love for Christ. So Jesus tells them to go wait in Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. So flip over with me to Acts, the book of Acts. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Just keep flipping. If you got the Romans, you went too far. If you got the Corinthians, you're too far. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter's restored by Jesus. The apostles are together. Earlier in chapter 2, because we're going to start, well, yeah, we'll, we'll start with, yeah, we'll start, start at the beginning. During this chapter, the Holy Spirit will powerfully come down on the apostles, and the church begins in an objective manner, and the gospel goes forth. Let's see what takes place. And we're not going to read all the verses, but just a few key ones. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, or had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Go to verse 12. And all were amazed. This is everybody who was outside listening to them. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, ha, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Jump to verse 37. So now Peter preaches. He just unloads the gospel. Bam. Verse 37. Here's what happens after Peter preaches. 37. Now when they heard this, this is all the onlookers, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41. Check this out. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What the heck happened to Peter? 50 days earlier, he's cursing. I don't know the man. Leave me alone. 50 days later, he's now, it's the same town, it's the same people, it's the same people that want to see the apostles dead. He's standing in front of a crowd of thousands proclaiming the gospel boldly, powerfully, and 3,000 people entered the church that day. And he didn't have time to go to school. He didn't have time to go get a theology degree. He didn't have time to go, uh, you know, read up on how to start Church 101 since he's the rock. <laughs> what happened to Peter? All right, go back to chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. This is Jesus talking before his ascension. And while staying with them, he charged them, the apostles, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. Jump down to verse 8. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when you wait in Jerusalem, 
Here's what's going to come. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. Same Peter, same town, same people. What was different was the power of the Holy Spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. A couple of power words here from verse 4 and 8. What did Jesus say? Wait in Jerusalem. They just went and prayed. That's all they did. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't know when it was coming. They waited and they prayed. And then Jesus says, verse 8, you will, when the spirit comes, you'll receive power. And power for what? Power to start your own you know, profound speaking ministry so you can make lots of money and be a really you know, well-respected individual. No, power to be witnesses to the gospel. In Greek, this word witness is martyr, martyrius. This is where we get the term martyr. Martyr doesn't actually mean die. It means witness, one who is witnessing to something that they saw, that they experienced. And all the early Christians were witnesses to the power of Christ. And they witnessed so hard that they gave their lives and they began to be called the witnesses, the witnesses, the martyrs, those that evangelized themselves to death. St. Peter, same people. The difference is the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal. Peter finally received the power to accomplish what Christ expected. All up until now, Peter's just trying to will it and make it happen. But through the Holy Spirit, he finally received what he needed to make it happen. Because this is a supernatural work. We mentioned this morning. Ephesians. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. This is a spiritual battle. You have to have spiritual weapons. The Holy Spirit is our chief spiritual weapon. Now here's the deal. If you've been baptized, if you've been confirmed, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need another anything. He's there. And I brought my friend a glass of milk to help illustrate this. Now, Chocolate milk, you love it, just like me. Chocolate milk, yes. Now, for many of us, this is our Christian life. So the white is you, milky goodness, and the Holy Spirit may be present because you've been baptized, you've been confirmed. The Holy Spirit is present in you right now, whether you feel it or not. You can't take a blood test for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so the chocolate represents the Holy Spirit, but you have yet to stir up the gifts of the Spirit. You have yet to stir up the Holy Spirit in your life. It's just kind of hanging out dormant. Now, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, as has been said. He will never force his way into your life. He will never make you do anything. But the moment that you... you got to stir a lot. <laughs> Remember, the Holy Spirit takes waiting, right? 
Ah, that looks like a Christian if I ever saw one. Ah, tastes good. That's taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what they say, right? All right. The Holy Spirit is present in you. If you've been baptized, and especially if you've been confirmed. But the Holy Spirit must be activated in your life. You must seek the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Desire the Holy Spirit. As I told that story this morning about reading Deuteronomy, going, I want some stories. All right. I began to think different, pray different, read different, act different, step out in faith. But what does it do? It requires waiting, prayer. This is not another action. I'm going to give you some Holy Spirit. Uh, make it happen. They had to go wait in Jerusalem. All right, there's, there's a lot more that I want to say, but I'm going to skip a whole bunch of things here. So here's what I want to focus on. The Holy Spirit does a whole lot of things in you. When Jesus says he will lead and guide you into all the truth, this means when the Holy Spirit is present in your life and active in your life, he'll begin to convict you of sin. He'll begin to say, hmm, oh, should you be doing that? He'll begin to open up the scriptures that like, oh, if I read another page of the Bible, I'm going to go nuts. And all of a sudden, oh, this, I never saw that before. Oh, that mess. I never heard that before. I, I love that we tell story. I dropped into Mass during the week. Huh, imagine that. It's not Sunday. <laughs> the Holy Spirit does many things in us. But the chief thing that Jesus points out in verse 4 and 8 of Acts 1, and when you get to the catechism and you read in the catechism about confirmation and the power of the Holy Spirit, it is so that you will be witnesses. That you will be witnesses. You will be public with your Christian faith. Doesn't mean you have to go get a soapbox and say, everybody, listen to me, I'm going to tell you about Jesus now. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe there's a soapbox in your neighborhood. Don't put anything past God. And here's what I do know. The moment you say, I'll never do that. That is when God puts it at the top of his list. You go, oh yeah, three days from now, you're going to be doing it. Don't ever say you don't want, you know. But it doesn't work in reverse. Lord, don't ever give me a Porsche. Never, Lord, never. It doesn't work backwards. It does not work backwards. Um, so, I'm going to do two more things and we're going to wrap up here. We see the, the effect of Peter is that now he's living by the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, when you go through the rest of Acts, he's healing people, he's preaching, he's getting imprisoned, he's doing all kinds of stuff. And at one point when he's on trial, here's what they say of him and the other apostles. They can tell they were uneducated men. Basically saying, hey, you're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> but it says, but they had been with Jesus. I'd be first to raise my hand and say, I'm in that line of just kind of knuckleheads. Drive my truck, illegal, get tickets. 
But when you spend time with Jesus and the Holy Spirit becomes alive and active in your life, you will overcome and conquer things that you never, ever expected. Um, hopefully you can see this. If you can't, don't, don't, don't worry about it. You, you don't really have to read this, but I just want to make a, make, make, make a point here. Over here on this, my little laser pointer doesn't work. Over on the right here it says, there it goes. It says, active ingredient. Now, when you go buy medicine at the store, and you look on the back, I don't know if they do this in Australia, but in the States they do this. They tell you what the active ingredient is. Because I like Advil, but it's really expensive. So I want to buy the cheap, generic brand. So what I do is I flip over the bottle, and I find what's the active ingredient. So I can find the generic brand, and find the same active ingredient, so I know I'm getting the same thing. So, uh, what you didn't know is that when you flip a Christian over, it says active ingredient is, uh, and it was supposed to say Holy Spirit there, but something happened. Anyway, it says Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the active ingredient in you. In Mother Mary Therese, in the sisters, in the Pope, in our priests. Uh, it's not rocket science. No, nobody that does great things for the Lord is amazing in and of themselves. Mother Teresa, when you read her story, she went to go help people die. That was her goal. I can help people die with dignity. Then it started getting better. And then the rest is history. She literally is one that made a worldwide impact. Here's what I know. Is that when I came into the Catholic Church, I received confirmation in my first Eucharist. Now I was a Pentecostal pastor previously, so I thought I knew all about the Holy Spirit. After I had received confirmation, now I was ready for it, I was excited for it, and I was ready to be changed. And cooperating with the Spirit is crucial. Again, Holy Spirit's a gentleman. He won't force himself on you. I received confirmation. In the, the subsequent weeks following my entrance in the church, I noticed that there were some pervasive sins that were gone. They were gone. And I, I thought, wow, this Catholic thing is pretty awesome. And <laughs> And then it hit me. I received the Holy Spirit in a new and powerful way in confirmation. To empower me to live this life and to be a witness for my faith. Don't sell the Holy Spirit short. If you've been stuck in the presumption stage, give Jesus an opportunity through the Holy Spirit to move you. Sin wreaks havoc on all of our lives. We all sin. There's no news flash there. But not all of us wait and give the Holy Spirit a chance to work through us and transform us. Now, there may be some of you here who are not baptized, didn't have not received confirmation. There may be some here who aren't even Christians here. Let me tell you, there is nothing like the power of the living God in your life. Nothing. In RCA, when I teach about the power of the sacraments, the power of God coming into them for the very first time, I bring a table saw with me on that night when I do the catechesis. And I have chunks of wood with sins written on anger, lust, 
jealousy. And I get to the end and talk about what they're going to encounter by the grace of Christ through the Holy Spirit and the sacraments. You are going to encounter God. Expect to be changed if you want to be changed. And I flip on the power saw and I cut chunks of wood and I cut these sins in half and say, this is what you are going to encounter if you are ready for it. If you expect nothing, you'll get nothing. But if you open yourself up, God will radically transform your life. So I'm going to stop here because I'm out of time. Let me just wrap with this. This stage, you become willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, but it requires waiting. Why do the sisters put you in prayer so much? Adoration, another rosary. Lord, help us. We, we prayed for an hour and we went to Mass in the same day. It's because you cannot will the Christian life into existence. It is by the Spirit. That 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And this is the time that you truly begin to conquer sin. It's by the Spirit of the Lord. So the only thing I'm going to say about the last section, which I didn't get to, the last section was passion, where Peter begins to understand, and so let me back up, passion. Passion means suffering, the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ. Where Peter begins to realize it's all for Jesus. And you move through the stages. First stage, what can Jesus do for me? Second stage, what can Jesus do through me, which is good? And the third stage, with passion, you just realize, all for Jesus. If I'm a fool for Christ, praise God. If I'm honored for Christ, praise God. If I suffer for Christ, praise God. If I'm hungry for Christ, praise God. If I prosper for Christ, praise God. If I die for Christ, praise God. All for Jesus. And what I'll just tell you is, is Peter's letter. Maybe you can read this during your own prayer time, during adoration. Read 1 Peter, letter of 1 Peter, specifically chapters 2 and 4. But it's short. It's only a couple chapters, the whole thing. A few chapters. But in there, he talks about suffering and the profound role of suffering in the life of the Christian. And when we embrace suffering, is when we find the truest freedom in Christ. That was Professor Drake McAllister on presumption, power, and passion. For more talks from the Immaculata Mission School 2013, visit cranio.org.au.